So just be yourself. This might be advice that you've heard at some point in your life. Maybe you're going on a date with someone for the first time, and you're nervous and talking to your friend, and they just say, just, just relax, just be yourself. Or maybe you're getting nervous about a job interview or something like that, and you're kind of freaking out about it, and then you, somebody gives you the advice, relax, just be yourself. And these two times in life, you know, dating or job interview, or maybe are appropriate times when we hear people say that, and they're kind of like, the, the reason people tell us that is because it's very difficult in those times to actually be ourselves, because we feel a lot of pressure. I want to put my, the, my best foot forward. I want to give people the best version of myself. I want, uh, maybe we feel like we want to impress, or we want to, um, some people to you know, like us, or, or see this person would be valuable for our, co- our, our company, so we're going to hire them. And the person sitting across from the table from us, we want them to be interested in us, to, to like us, to see us as valuable or, or lovable. We want them to hire us or date us or to uh, give us a promotion or to see how funny we are, how likable we are, how knowledgeable we are. And so in these situations, we tend actually not to be ourselves. People say, just relax, be yourselves. But in those situations, we kind of tend not to be ourselves because we're not gonna, we don't really want to show the per- other person across from us the not likable parts of us or the parts of us that would kind of show we wouldn't be a good employee or a good person to date. We want to show people the most funny and likable self, our most knowledgeable self, our most valuable and worthy self. We don't show our faults and cracks and our weirdness unless we feel like showing those things would actually make them like us more. So everything we're doing is so so the person will like us or uh, want to hire us or something like that. And social media in general is not a place where people are really being themselves uh, because there's been many studies and people have said that actually lots of time on social media can actually lead to sadness and depression because you're scrolling through everyone else's highlight reel for their life and then you're looking at your life and seeing, well, I don't, man, I'm not doing that exciting stuff. I don't have this going on. And you know, so we compare our, our normal lives to their highlight reel and we think, my life is kind of crummy. And so social media is, uh, doesn't make us feel good oftentimes because people aren't showing them ho- their whole selves. They're showing these are the parts I want people to see. And so I want to explore a question together. And to answer it, you can close your eyes if that would help. And try to put yourself in this situation. A time when you felt like you could completely act like yourself. A time when you could completely act like yourself. And I'll just give you a moment to kind of like, what, what was going on? Who was I with? What was I feeling like I could do? What was a time that you could completely act like yourself? Who was there? What kind of relationship did you have with them? And then I want us to consider this. What conditions uh, made you able to feel that you could act like yourself? What has to be true in that situation for you to feel like, I can just be myself? So what, would, what needs to be true? What was true in that situation where you felt you, you could be yourself? What are some things that were true of that environment or circumstances? I'm just shout them out as you forgot my whiteboard, so we have to do it by memory. Trust. Trust, okay, trust the person. They, maybe they trust you too, but you trust the person. Yeah, that's big. Feel safe. Feel safe, yeah. Be myself because it's safe. Maybe let's dig down, all of us dig down on that. What 
makes us feel safe. So trusting a person makes us feel safe. What makes us feel safe? Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Okay, no matter what I do, no matter what they see of me, they're still going to love me. Yeah? Accepted is the word I like. Accepted. Accepted, yeah, I feel accepted. These people aren't judging me. They're not looking down on me. They're accepting me. Yeah. Any other things you'd throw out there as conditions that are necessary for us to feel like we can be ourselves? You're building on that, that we're accepted even when they, in normal judging, they, they know our bad as well as our good. Okay, so they know all of you, kind of. Yeah, okay. And they still accept us. Yeah, and still accept you. Yeah, still, and still love you, unconditional. Also, knowing that it's like reciprocal, you know, mm. that it's not just one-sided. Okay, yeah. <coughs> yeah. So it's not that they're just here to help you or something like that, or you're just there helping them, but you help each other, yeah. and you accept each other yeah. both ways. Okay. Okay. Uh, confidence and humility. Okay, so you have a maybe a confidence that's coming, that allows you to be yourself, and you're, you're humble, you're not like feeling, oh, I've, I've got to be all that or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So we've got a lot of things that accepted, unconditional love, safety, humility, um, trust, feeling like it kind of goes both ways. I hope I might have missed some of those. But uh, as we keep some of those in mind, as we prepare to celebrate Christ's birth at Christmas, we're, we've been in this series, this is the last one, of the greatest gift exchange because Christmas is a time of gift giving. And I don't, you know, I don't know how the gift giving started, but at least how we can look at it as this is us reflecting uh, God's gift giving to us. He said, for God's love of the world, that he gave his one and only son. And now we receive that as a gift. And so our gift giving can be this reflection of um, how God has given this gift to us, a reflection and a reminder. And we've been looking at when we trust in Jesus, there's kind of another gift exchange that takes place. God gives us Jesus, but also when we trust in Jesus, there's a gift exchange that happens between us and Jesus is that we give him something, he gives us something. And this week we'll be looking at uh, the apostles. All three of these passages have been in the Apostle Paul, but we're looking at his letter to the churches in Galatia. This was a region, and Paul was uh, a church planter, and so he went to places and to start churches where they needed a more gospel witness, that there weren't people preaching the gospel there, because this was a, a brand new thing of Christianity breaking into the world. Of course, it was built on Judaism, but... Uh, what they're saying is this is Israel's promised Messiah. This is the Jewish promised Messiah. And now they're going out and telling people that good news, the Messiah has come. Everything we waited for in the Old Testament has now come true. And Paul started off as a passionate and dangerous opponent of this Jesus movement. But then everything changed when he met Jesus. Jesus came into his life and became this church planter. And uh, I can relate to Paul because... It's what brought us to Woodstock, is that he, was, he wanted to go to places. He was like, I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. I want to go to places where there is no foundation of Christ, and I want to go where there's the, the greatest need. And that's what brought us to Woodstock, is that we saw this was a place that needed more churches holding to the gospel and on a mission to share that gospel with this city. And it's only become more evident the longer we've been here. And Paul not only got churches started, but he would travel back to those churches to help strengthen them and build them up and establish leadership. And he would also send letters to them um, if he heard something was going wrong or to encourage them and to instruct them. And that's why we have these letters in our Bible. It's like, oh, these are instructions for uh, people who have trusted in Jesus. This is what it looks like to be a church 
uh, trusting in Jesus or a person trusting in Jesus. And one of these letters was sent to the churches in Galatia. And uh, this isn't Katie and I's plan, uh, but imagine a scenario where Katie and I kind of felt like our work was done here. We got our, the church started, and now it's okay, we have other things <coughs> we, need, we need to move on to. And then maybe we would hear, after a couple of years, like a, a group of people <coughs> have come into Good News Church. You, you know, there's other people leading this, other people shepherding us. And then there's, but then there's a group of people that came in, and they're taking the church in the wrong direction. They're kind of getting Good News Church to believe something other than the gospel. They're getting Good News Church to believe things that aren't in accord with what we taught while we were here. And then perhaps we would hear that and, and think, we, we've got to do something about this. We, and at one, on the one level, we'd be heartbroken. Like, how could they turn away from Jesus? Uh, like we helped you know, get this church started, and people committed to Jesus, committed to this church, and now they're starting to turn away. And so we might feel like, we need to write them a letter or maybe an email send a text. This Galatians would pretty, be a pretty long text, but you know, maybe we need to get in contact with this church, Good News Church that we helped start. We need to help them kind of get back, see what's, what are the errors in what this group has taught them and get them back to uh, believing in Jesus, trusting in him fully. And so Paul, you can imagine how probably how I would feel if that happened. It helps put us in Paul's shoes. This is a church he's helped get started. These people <coughs> committed to Jesus because they heard about him for the first time through Paul, and now he's hearing, wait, no, no, you're turning away, no, no, no. And so he, the, you can, his concern for them uh, can be felt if we think about that emotional state. They're kind of walking toward a cliff, and they don't even realize it, they can't see it. So let's define the, the issue here. Uh, you might be surprised to hear that the group of Paul's opponents and Paul actually agree quite a bit on something. The, the big question is, who is blessed by God? Whom does God bless? And Paul and the opponents that came into the church, uh, churches of Galatia, had the same answer. The, the righteous. Who does God bless? The righteous person. You need to be righteous for God to bless you. That's whom God blesses. God blesses the righteous. But the key difference is that they disagree on how someone becomes righteous. They agree that God blesses the righteous person, but they disagree on how someone becomes righteous. This righteous person is someone who is right with God. They're in a right standing with God. God and them are good, you know. If you feel like a relationship had conflict, and you might ask the person, like, you know, are we good? Are we okay? And to be in a right standing with God, to be righteous, means you and God are good. You and God are okay. Like, there's nothing's going on there. And so the, how is someone made right with God? And the answer that Paul's opponents gave was by relying on works of the law or by relying on your obedience, your ability to keep God's commands. You are righteous by your ability to do what God says. That's their answer. Become righteous, get right with God by doing what God says. And this is where they disagree because Paul's answer is you get right with God by relying on Christ. You don't get right with God by relying on your works of the law you get right with God by relying on Christ's work on your behalf. That's what we read at the beginning of the service, the, of what Jesus has done on our behalf. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You don't do... these, And these are two fundamentally different ways of relating to God. One is with faith in yourself, and one is with faith in Christ. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, he shows us uh, that this tendency, our tendency to drift into reliance on ourselves instead of reliance on God. We all have this tendency. 
This is what the Galatians had done in, in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Paul wonders, why have you strayed so far from where you began? You, put, you started off by relying on Jesus Christ to be right with God. And now, what, what are you trying to do? You're trying to rely on something else? You're trying to rely on your own efforts? And he says, did you receive the Spirit by your doing your works of the law? Did you see miracles done among you by works of the law? No. You saw these miracles happen in your life. You saw Jesus come in and change you by relying on Him, not relying on your own ability to keep God's commands. And then in six, verses 6 through 9, Paul shows that if you want the blessing of Abraham, you need to be right with God the way that Abraham was right with God. And that was through faith. And Abraham, if you don't know, is the, like the founding father of the nation of Israel. God chose him. He wasn't a believer in God. He believed in other gods. Um, but God chose him and said, I'm going to bless you so that you would be a blessing. I'm going to bless you so that I can bless the whole world. Because after Genesis 3, we are cursed. The world is cursed. We're infected with sin. But God says, I'm going to reverse this. I'm going to bring blessing back into my world through Abraham and his family. And Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. And Paul says the scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And he summarizes the gospel as this. In you, in Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. You can find this back in Genesis chapter 12. And the gospel is God blesses you. And the nations is referring to everyone who's outside of Abraham's family, the non-Jewish people. And so God is saying... In you, all people of the world are going to be blessed. And so the gospel is God blesses you. And this blessing comes to those who are of faith. Those who are of faith are blessed right along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so the blessed life does not come through works, but through faith. The blessed life doesn't come through our ability to keep do everything that God says, but through faith in God. So if you want God's blessing, you have to stop relying on yourself rely on him. And then in verses 10 through 12, Paul shows why we can't be blessed by keeping the law, by relying on ourselves, by relying on our obedience, by relying on our performance, or our goodness, or our effort. And the reason is because anyone who relies on works of the law is cursed, not blessed. This is what he says in verse 10. And why is someone who relies on the works of the law cursed and not blessed? He says, because in order to be blessed according to the law, you must abide by all things written in the law and do them. Otherwise, you will be cursed. And so he's saying God blesses the righteous, but in order to be righteous according to the law, you have to keep every single law, all of them. You can't break any of them. And the problem is that no one keeps the whole law. Therefore, anyone who tries to be righteous by law-keeping, never will be. They will be under a curse, the opposite of blessing. And when he's talking about law, he's not talking about you know, our government laws. He's talking about the laws of the Old Testament. And, you, and this is typically referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. A lot of that is story of how God, how God created the world, how the world got messed up, and how God's redeeming the world through Abraham and his family, and how the nation of Israel is getting established. And within that, he gives them laws on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments are kind of like the summarized version, and all the other laws are kind of showing how do you live out the Ten Commandments. And so these are the God; these are my laws. Keep these Ten Commandments. Or Jesus sums it up as: love God with all you have, above all else, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you, so He's saying, 
If you can keep those two laws, love God above all else, love your neighbor as yourself, all the time, both of them all the time, always, never deviating from it, you'll be righteous. But the problem is that no one does that. Therefore, no one's righteous by keeping those two laws or any of the laws. So Paul says that no one is justified, or in other words, declared righteous before God by the law. Only people of faith are justified. Only people of faith are declared righteous. Because that's the only way to be justified, he says in verse 11. And so he shows that faith, not works of the law, is the only basis for righteousness with God. The gospel of righteousness by the law is no gospel at all. It isn't good news. Hey, you can be blessed by God if you can be righteous. Good news. But he's saying, no, this is good news at all because that, it never can happen. What Paul shows here and in the book of Romans is that the, the right way to get, the way that God has always made it for, to get right with him is through faith. That's how it always has been. Yes, God gave Israel the law of Mount Sinai, but that didn't override uh, what was previously established that in Genesis uh, 15, um, the, I might be messing up my chapters there, Genesis 15 or 17, uh, one of those two, that Abraham believes God and is counted to him as righteousness. And so righteousness comes by faith in God, believing what God says, trusting in him, saying, I'm just relying on your grace, your love, your mercy for my life. And, the, and then the law given however many years earlier, didn't override that way of relating to God. And righteousness always comes by faith. So in verses 13 and 14, these are our focus for today. Verses 13 and 14 show how faith in Jesus makes us right with God. And the end of verse 13 quotes, gives us a quote from the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone hanged on a tree. And that's from Deuteronomy 21-23. And this event is, or this verse is talking about an event where somebody uh, breaks God's law, um, and then they're cursed, and the punishment they get is that they're put to death, because that's what people deserve for breaking God's law. And then after being put to death, they're hung on like a stake or on a tree. And the verse says they shouldn't remain there all night, but should be buried the same day, because a, hang, a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And then jumping forward to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Uh, Moses writes, uh, tells the people, these are the consequences of breaking covenant with God. You are cursed. And in chapter 28, he says, these are the rewards for keeping covenant with God, for obeying God. You are blessed. And then he says in Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And so Paul brings these verses together and shows, if you break God's law, you are cursed. And that is symbolized by dying and being hung on a tree. And of course, Deuteronomy wasn't talking about crucifixion. They didn't have crucifixion then, at least that I've heard of or that's been recorded. But this was, what I understand, this is something invented by the Romans. And he sees the connection that Jesus was hanged on a cross by the Roman Empire. And then he's looking back at the Old Testament and seeing, oh, it says anyone hanged on a tree is cursed. And you're cursed by breaking God's law. So Jesus was. Uh, hung, cursed by God as someone who broke God's law. And he said in verse 1 of the Galatians, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified to you. When I preached the gospel to you, I told you that he was crucified on this tree. But let's go back to the beginning of verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
And so Jesus was not cursed because of his failure to obey the law, but he is cursed and crucified because of our failure to obey the law. He became a curse for us. And so according to the Old Testament, Jesus' death on the cross was the death of a cursed lawbreaker. And then even more, in, Ro- in the Roman Empire, uh, people who rebelled against the Roman Empire are crucified to say, this is what happens if you mess with us, so stay in line. And so Jesus was crucified as a cursed lawbreaker, according to the Old Testament, and he was crucified as a rebel, uh, according to the Roman law. He was a rebel, crucified as a rebel, even though he never rebelled. And he was crucified as a lawbreaker, even though he never broke any laws. And so Jesus' death was the death of a law-breaking rebel. And that's what each of us is, a law-breaking rebel, apart from Christ. That's what each of us is, a law-breaking rebel against God. And the truth is that without Jesus, we're all in the same situation, cursed according to the law of God because we have broken it. Everyone falls short. No one can keep all of God's commands. And this is where relying on our works of the law gets us, is cursed. And so everything you feel or think uh, that you deserve for the bad things you've done in your life is only a fraction of what is actually deserved. You feel like, oh man, I, you know, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. If we even start to feel somewhat bad about, these are the things I've done and I feel so sorry about them and I regret them so much, times that by infinity and that's what actually you deserve for the laws you've broken against God. And I might think, well, isn't God overreacting? We break one law and we get the death penalty? And think about this. The greater the person you sin against, the greater the consequences. And so punching a police officer is more serious than punching me. And punching the president is more serious than punching a police officer. As bad, And so it just keeps going up from there. So if then you imagine punching Jesus or punching God, obviously that's you know, kind of ridiculous, but the, the greater the person that you have sinned against or rebelled against or hurt, the greater the consequences. And so as bad as you can imagine the consequences are for rebelling against God, you still haven't come anywhere close to how bad it actually is. But we're told Christ Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And why did he do this? Verse 14 tells us, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And there's two so that's in this, in this verse. And the first one gives us a more kind of general salvation history perspective. Salvation history or redemptive history meaning God's plan that he's put in place to redeem us or to save us. And so the first one is, takes it from that perspective and is a more general. It says, Jesus became a curse for us so that in him the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. And the second so that gets more personal and more specific. Jesus became a curse for us so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And the spirit is God's personal presence with us, given to us. And this is what was lost in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they get pushed out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's presence. And so now what happens is uh, Jesus becomes a curse for us, so now that we can be in God's presence again. The blessed life is being with God, relationship with God, being in God's presence. And so the Spirit comes and gives us God's personal presence. 
And this blessing only comes to those who are justified, who are declared righteous. And the only people who are justified are people who put their faith in Christ. Everyone else is condemned and declared guilty. Those who put their faith in Christ are declared righteous. They're justified. And so the gift exchange is this. We give Jesus our curse. Jesus gives us his blessing. We give Jesus our curse for being lawbreakers and rebels. Jesus gives us his blessing as someone who was righteous, not a lawbreaker, not a rebel. And Jesus is blessed because he actually has kept the whole law. He's never broken one. He's never had a separation between him and God where that relationship has been broken. Unbroken, perfect relationship between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father. And we're cursed because we've broken many of the laws numerous times. But Jesus takes our curse in our place so that we can stand in his place and receive the blessing that he deserves. An author and pastor, Tim Keller, and he defines the gospel like this. He says, We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And that is the good news. And we could summarize the gospel or the good news in this way. God is for you. God is with you. God is no longer against you. He's for you. And he's with you. He's not distant. You're not pushed out of his presence because of your sin. God is for you. And he's with you. And you can connect them together to say God is with you because God is for you. He's no longer against you because now that whatever breach happened in our relationship with him, he has overcome that. And so now he is for us and he is with us. And the greatest gift exchange is that we've done everything wrong and Jesus has done everything right. But he gets treated as if he's done everything wrong. And we get treated as if we've done everything right. He takes places with us. He switches spots with us so that we become a child of God just like him. And there's no better news than that, that we've done everything wrong. We've broken all these laws and it's like, Wait, you want to trade spots with me? You, you sure? And so he goes and stands in that spot, and then we get to go stand in the spot that he is with the Father, and we get to have that unbroken relationship. And so this is a letter for any church and any person that has gotten out of alignment with the gospel. And a simple way to summarize this whole letter is using this question, and Gene used this word earlier. Are you going to live from acceptance or for acceptance? So one way to summarize this whole letter, the question it's asking, are you going to live from acceptance or for acceptance? There's a great difference between them. One Paul calls slavery, and the other Paul calls freedom. One, he says, is living like a slave, and the other is living like a child of God. At some point, everyone has to choose between a righteousness of their own or a righteousness that... Is from God and depends on faith in Jesus Christ. At some point, everyone has to choose between receiving acceptance from God as a gift or working for that acceptance by what they do, by their performance, their obedience, their ability to keep God's law. And only one actually leads to acceptance because if we're working for it and we think, I need to earn acceptance from God, we'll never get there. It has to be received as a gift. We can either earn righteousness or receive it. But if you decide to earn it, you'll never get it. If you decide to receive it, you'll find freedom. This is a danger for all of us because we have this tendency to drift into reliance on law-keeping. So consider for yourself, as you stand before God today, 
what are you relying on at this very moment for him to accept you, to love you, to bless you, to look with favor upon you? Are you relying on, okay, I had a, I had a pretty good week. You know, I didn't sin too much. I read my Bible most of the days. I even remembered to pray and didn't fall asleep at night while I was doing so. And so, yeah, I feel like God and I are pretty good. Or are you looking back at your week and thinking, you know, I got frustrated with my kids. I got frustrated with a coworker, Or I didn't read my Bible at all. Um, I kind of just, you know, vegged out and stuff. I didn't do anything that is associated with God. And you feel like, man, okay, I'll have to do a little better this week. And hopefully, by the end of it, now God will accept me. And so what, on what are you relying for your acceptance with God? Of when God looks at you, does he look at you with favor because of what you've done? Or because he's just gracious and he does so and he says, I don't care what your week is like. I just love you. I'm going to look at you with favor. I'm going to treat you like my favorite, not you know, in, in connection with what you've done. And you may wonder, well, how do I know if I'm living from acceptance or for acceptance? How do I know if I'm trusting in Christ or myself? How do I know if I'm living as a slave or a child of God? And Paul provides a good diagnostic test in Galatians chapter 5 where he lists the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. It's been a real joy to think about the connection between uh, our righteousness in Christ, our freedom in Christ, and the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh and how they're connected. And so the works of the flesh are what grow in our life when we're relying on ourselves instead of Christ. Works of the flesh will grow in our life when we're relying on ourselves instead of on Christ. And so Paul lists them in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And so not feeling accepted by God fuels the works of the flesh. Not being accepted by God fuels the works of the flesh. And I have a story um, to show this in action. I'm not proud of this story. It's something that happened between Hudson and I. Uh, you guys saw my trumpet on yesterday. I was going to bring it and I forgot. But um, I, had, I needed this valve oil for the valves because the valves were stuck. And so the valve oil came and I was excited to get the valves working again. And Hudson was very excited that it came too, and I had the trumpet out. He wanted to help me. And so we're sitting at the table, and I'm kind of trying to get things set up. And the trumpet's kind of delicate. You want, don't want to drop it. You don't want to bang it on stuff. And I'm, like, trying to get things set up. And he's like, I want, I want to help. And he's kind of, like, getting into the stuff. I'm like, hey, buddy, I need to, I need to get this set up. And it, you maybe felt those moments when you have, like, some delicate things out. And then you're like, no, no, you know what, you need, you need the dog is whipping by it or, you know, a kid is coming by and you're like, no, no, don't do that. And I was kind of feeling, getting stressed about that. And he kept grabbing things and I was trying to, you know, kind of let him slow down and help me in the way that uh, it wasn't going to squirt oil all over the place or whatever. But then he grabbed, I got the cap off the oil squirt and he, so he grabbed it and I'm removing the, the valves from it and then he squeezed it and the oil shoots like three feet in the air and then lands on the table and on the trumpet case and I was like, Oh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but like, okay, um, you're not helping me anymore. I'm going to do this by myself. So I picked him up, and I moved from the table, and I put him in the living room, and then I went back to it. And then he kind of like came around the corner and was like, 
kind of watching me after that. And I'm just kind of frustrated, so I was like in my zone um, and got, got it set up and was working on it. And I'm feeling like I really shouldn't have done that. I, I should apologize to him and go talk to him about it. And then I don't know what happened. So we got started getting on other things, and I forgot that I needed to you know, talk to him about this. Yeah, but for the next 30 to 40 minutes, Hudson was having a very hard time. It was like his whole mood had just switched. He was acting out. He was crying for seemingly no reason. He's throwing tantrums. And Katie's trying to figure out what's wrong. Buddy, what's wrong? She's trying to comfort him and help him and help him work through things. And I don't remember you know, all that was said, but there, apparently she had kind of discerned that um, he wanted me. And I was like, he doesn't... He's like, I don't think he. I said, I don't think he wants me. And all of a sudden, I was like, Oh wait, you know, 30, 40 minutes ago, I had this moment where I was upset with him, and I removed him um, from my presence. And so I picked him up, and I immediately remember, I was like, What's wrong, buddy? And he told me about how I got mad at him, and he said, uh, And you, you took me away, you moved me away. And so I empathized with him. Was him I was like, yeah, Daddy shouldn't have done that. I got mad. I shouldn't have done that, buddy. I shouldn't have moved you away from me. And he's like, you moved me away. You know, he's like, he's just sad and expressing it. And I asked for his forgiveness, and we snuggled for a while. And I'm not, you know, proud of that story. Um, maybe proud that we got to reconcile. Um, but what I noticed was powerful about this experience is that Hudson could, couldn't put into words what was wrong. He's just acting out, throwing tantrums, crying getting upset, and he couldn't put into words what was wrong with him. And what happened between him and I affected everything he did until we were reconciled and resolved it. Until he felt like we were okay. It was, you know, the littlest thing was setting him off, crying, acting out, misbehaving, laying on the floor. He was having a hard time not knowing if he and I were okay. And there was this break in the, our relationship, and he couldn't live with that. I mean, this isn't even a huge break. You know, it was one moment. He, he knows I love him, but in that moment, he didn't feel loved. And the closest he got to telling Katie what was wrong was kind of saying, like, I want Daddy, or Daddy up. And she, that's when she said, he wants you. And all he knew is that he wanted Daddy because Daddy had separated from him. And he wanted to know that we were okay. And if this is what Hudson felt and how he behaved from this one short interaction, how much more will our lack of knowing we're okay with God and good with God and accepted by God affect our lives over the course of a lifetime of all the things we've done wrong and feeling like, oh, I haven't made that right or I haven't talked to God about that. And how much more will we be affected? And this is where I see that the works of the flesh come out. This, the works of the flesh are us acting out or us trying to find other ways to be okay, to to feel better about ourselves, that I just feel like something is wrong and I'm falling short and maybe I'll go numb myself with um, substances or experiences or, or I'll you know, just get something to make me feel high so I forget about how I felt or I'll do these other things. These, I'll, I'll, feel, I'll try to make myself better than other people. Com- competing, comparing, it creates divisions and dissensions and envy and these are our ways of acting out that we aren't accepted by God. And the fruit of the Spirit that grows in our lives when we're relying on Christ instead of ourselves, are these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit, the Spirit is the one who grows the fruit of the Spirit in us. And the Spirit does this by moving us from self-reliance 
to Christ's reliance. And in doing this, we experience greater and greater freedom in our lives because we realize I'm accepted by God not because of what I do. And so if you see the works of the flesh in your life or you just know, what am I doing? I'm not acting how I should act. Ask yourself this, what am I relying on as my source of acceptance with God? You see the works of the flesh in your life. Ask, what am I relying on as my source of acceptance with God? Because Paul shows us that he believes that's the root. He says, freedom in Christ. Live out your freedom. And if you are free, now you're going to see this fruit of the Spirit in your life. If you lack love, joy, and peace, ask, what am I relying on as my source of acceptance with God? And another way to summarize Galatians is with two contrasting equations. Paul's argument is that Jesus plus something equals nothing. His argument is that Jesus plus something equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's his argument. If you add something to Jesus to be right with God, you have nothing. He says you have abandoned grace. You've walked away from Christ. But the reality is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You now have everything you're longing for. Love, joy, peace, uh, blessing from God in the form of his presence and his love for you. And so what is your Jesus plus? What's your Jesus plus? What do you try to add to Jesus? And turn, what we need to do is turn from any other source of acceptance with God that isn't Christ. We need to turn from every other source of acceptance with God that isn't Christ. And we need to turn to Christ as the only source of right standing with God. Because the good news is Jesus is enough. We don't need to add something to him. Well, a little bit of Jesus, he kind of got us halfway. But now we add, need to add our own obedience, our own goodness, our own efforts to be right with God. But you don't need to add anything to him. You can rest confident. What we desire deep down is to know we are okay with God, even if you can't always put words to that. Jesus is all you need to be right with him. And so think back to situations where you were able to act like yourself. What was true in those situations? And we said there was safety, there was trust, there was people accepted us for who we were. And because they did, we could act like ourselves because we felt free to be ourselves because there weren't going to be relational consequences for the things we did. We, I can be myself. All the good stuff, all the messy, junky stuff, and there's not going to be relational consequences. These people are going to love me and accept me and be with me. And the reality is that you cannot or will not act like yourself in an environment where the message is, do this or else. Be this or else. Or unless I blank, then you, if you're in an environment where it's do this or else, you cannot feel free to be yourself knowing, we're, of course, being ourselves, we don't want to be like, you know, I'm a sinner, so to be myself is to sin. No, that's not the point of it. If we feel accepted by God, what comes out of us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things God grows in our life when we finally say, I can be myself. Sin, messiness, the good stuff, and all. And God is here with me. And that's going to grow something different in our lives. So do you have a do this or else relationship with God? And you may have people in your life that you think, well, they're such good, nice people. How could God condemn them? How could he say that this person, you know, they're doing their best, they're good people. How could God ever, when they're standing before him, how could he ever condemn them and say, guilty, sorry, um, you, what you've earned for your life is death. And that's what you get. 
And the reason that God would condemn them is because no one is made right before God by being good or nice. Especially if being good or nice is a way for them to not rely on God. God has said, this is what is required to be right with me. Trust. Trust in my son. He makes you right with me. And if we say, heard about that, it's not for me, I'm just going to try to be good, a good person, and hope it works out in the end. We're saying, God, I think I have a better way than you to be right with you. And it's just the ultimate way of pride of saying, like, God, I have my own way. And so thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to, you know, that's going to require a lot of me to trust in your son, so I'm going to kind of do it my way and hope it works out. And we are all searching for love, joy, and peace. And we will rely on something for that. We will trust in something for that. We'll place our hope in something for that. But there's only one true source of love, joy, and peace. And that is Jesus Christ. And Jesus creates a community where we can be ourselves. Where we don't have to put on a show. Where we don't have to pretend or perform. Where we don't have to make ourselves more lovable or more likable. Jesus creates a community of love, joy, and peace where we can be patient with each other kind to each other, good to each other, faithful to each other, gentle and self-controlled. It's a community where we feel safe to be ourselves because we know our acceptance isn't based on what we do. We've been accepted by God, not based on what we do, and now we can give that to other people as a community. Let's pray. Father, it's so hard for us to live in the reality that we do not have to earn your favor that we don't have to work hard to be accepted by you, but you give it to us as a free gift. Would you let us, especially now, during this Christmas season, to just rest and relax and relish the gift you've given us in Christ, that you love us, you're faithful to us, you enjoy us, and you're at peace with us. So today we pray. Amen.